We're in our second week of Acts chapter 2. We're uh, just really today going to be looking at the last part of this book, uh, last part of this chapter. But what, what we're talking about is really trying to seek to answer this question, what is the biblical vision of the church? And what's the biblical definition of the church? And so last week, I kind of gave you a thesis statement, so I'll go ahead and put that up first, and we'll, and we'll work through that just really, really quickly. But we said, the church is a group of spirit-filled, and so we're pulling that from Peter's sermon, where he says, if you believe, you'll have the forgiveness of sins and the filling of the Holy Spirit. And so what I'm trying to do over the course of this year is normalize this term spirit-filled. It's a term, I think, uh, sometimes we, particularly as Baptists, try to shy away from or be weary of, but, but it's one that the Bible is very clear about, that, that upon believing in Christ as your Savior, you are given access to the Holy Spirit who, who dwells within you, and he changes the way you think about things and the way you see things. And, and so one of the qualifications, I think, of a church is that it is a group of Spirit-filled people. So we'll be talking about that over the course of this year. But uh, um, a group of spirit-filled people focused on Jesus. That's our next phrase that we talked about looking at Peter's sermon last week. And, and talking about how the unifying factor of any church, uh, the unifying factor is, is not our, uh, our, our traditions. It's not the building. It's not a set of political beliefs. It's not the, the unifying factor of our church is the focus on Jesus. That's the thing that we celebrate, we circle around, we focus on. It's all about Jesus all of the time. So the church is a group of spirit-filled people focused on Jesus in a way which leads to routine. Or, or a routine. This is what we talked about quite extensively last week. Just, just kind of saying that the, the church sets up these devotions in Acts chapter 2, verse 42, and they devote themselves. And so this idea of setting up this routine practice in life of, of coming together and, and doing these things so that we can grow in our faith and learn about God and love God. And so we said two, two routines that the church is wanting to focus on. That's routinely learning about God. That's what we're going to preach over and talk about today. And then routinely living together. That'll be next week. And then the result of this is what I called community impact. Just looking at the last verse of Acts chapter 2. Uh, that says God was adding to them daily. So as the church is doing these things, God is adding to their numbers. People are getting saved. And so that's kind of our, our thesis statement. Today we're going to focus on how we as a church are meant to be this church of routine learning about God, that we set up this, this environment of everyone having the chance to come in, learn about God, study him. Um, but, but I have to confess, do you guys, any of you in this habit of overcomplicating things that aren't supposed to be complicated? Anybody else do that ever? So uh, I need a prop for what I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use this microphone as a prop. Um, so number one, uh, this is a judgment-free zone. You're not allowed to judge me. That's number one. Um, number two, I'm not making the chipmunk noise again. Um, number, number two, uh, so I, you just kind of have these special snacks that you eat growing up, and they kind of become comfort food. So one of my favorite snacks that I eat is to take hot dogs and cut them in half, and put cheese on them, like, like shredded cheese, and microwave it to like the cheese makes a melted cheese blanket over the hot dogs. And you just put like mustard over the top of it. I don't know what it is about a hot dog cut in half with cheese, that, but I love that snack. So don't judge me. That's, that's, you agreed to that. Um, so, so this was a thing that I would do quite often when Haley and I first got married. I'd get a hot dog, and I'd go to cut it in half. But it was really frustrating to me, because cutting a hot dog in half is so, so complicated. Um, and I remember one day I was in the kitchen, I was making my hot dog snack, and I was cutting my hot dog in half and doing what any good husband does. I was complaining about it. Like, this is the hardest thing I've ever done. And Haley's like, what are you complaining about? And I'm sitting in there, and I have, I have my hot dog, and I have my knife, and I'm cutting it in half, like vertically, like top, top to bottom. 
And Haley does this, there's, there's my illustration with that. Um, so, so Haley does this thing that she always does, and it amazes, it amazes me how she does this. She says, why are you doing it that way? And she proceeds to take the hot dog, lay it horizontally on the plate, and go, whoop, and just cut it in half like that. I'm t- she's the smartest person I've ever met, guys. Like, she just blows, blows my mind all the time. She's like, why are you cutting a hot dog that way? That's the most complicated way I've ever seen anyone try to cut a hot dog in all my life. Just do it like this. And I'm like, my mind has just been blown, right? By the way, there's like 40 of those stories with different things. You can ask her about it, um, trying to put pasta into water. Yeah, just ask her. You know, she'll, she'll tell you all those stories. They'll, they'll be great. Um, but, but Haley will come in and she'll be like, Philip, you are way overcomplicating this. Look how easy it is. Anybody ever do stuff like that? You just take a simple task and you overcomplicate it for no reason, just other than you, you didn't mean to do it, and that's how you always did it. Um, this is like when you, when you order pizza for a large group of people. You have ever been in that situation? And, uh, you know, you got one person, I want pepperonis. I don't want pepperonis. I want olives. Ooh, olives are gross. I want to put, and you're just like, I, so what do you do when it gets that complicated? You, you simplify it. You say, no, we're all getting just pepperoni pizza, and if you don't like them, you can pull the pepperonis off the end. That's, that's how you deal with it, right? That's how I would deal with it, at least. Of course, I don't have kids yet, so you're like saying, Philip, wait, and then you'll, you might change your mind on that. I don't know. Um, here, here's, here's my point, though. Whenever we deal with something that, that's kind of complicated, sometimes in order to accomplish a goal, be it cutting a hot dog in half or ordering pizza for seven people, usually the first step is trying to simplify the process. It, it's thinking enough about it to simplify the, the process, Right. And I think, in a way, this is what we've done in some ways when, when it's come to church. We, we've taken uh, our purpose of church and we've complicated it even to the point of in- intimidation sometimes. And if you overcomplicate something to the point of intimidation, usually you just stop trying it, right? I don't, I've tried it. I've failed too many times. I don't want to do it anymore. Hands off. I'm, I'm done. And then what's the result? The result is, if it's the church, failure to do what God has tasked us with, what God has commissioned us for. So, so to take our main focus today, the church exists to foster a routine learning about God. By the way, if you're a note taker and you've already written this down, I'm sorry. Because that's a pretty complicated way of saying that, right? Because is, is there a word that means like routinely learning about God that we use in the church sometimes? It starts with a, a D. We use the word discipleship, right? That's what discipleship means. And so I'm kind of already starting to overcomplicate this, but maybe we could just simplify it down even more to say the church exists to make disciples, right? Do you see where those two things kind of mean the exact same thing? We exist to routinely learn about God. Well, routinely learning about God is just making disciples. That we're coming to this thing together. We're learning about God together. We're making the disciples. And, and that's one of those words that uh, we, we talked about this in extent um, in Sunday school today. That's one of those words that is very Christian in its, in its concept. Have you guys, any of you in here, used the word disciple this week outside of church context? Okay, I was just wondering. Maybe somebody was like, yeah, we, we don't use that outside of church context, right? But, but in Greek, this isn't a specifically sub-church, subculture church word. Uh, this is just a word that they use. Um, and really, in the Bible, a lot of times, the word mathetuo, which is to be a disciple, um, it, it can't just be translated to, to learn. I'm saying that because hold, hold on to it, but here's the definition we're going to be working with today. That a disciple is a person committed to learning from a teacher or from a particular taught idea. So, so someone that's dedicated to learning about that thing. So the question then is, is, 
the church in Acts 2, do they fulfill that? Are they making disciples? I think so. Let me set up the context that we were in last week, and we'll jump into the text today. So Acts chapter 2, they're in Jerusalem. It's the time of Pentecost, so there's thousands upon thousands of people that have made pilgrimages from all over the world that's come to Jerusalem. And at the same time, this, this small group of men and women who knew about Jesus and knew about the resurrection are waiting there in a room in the city because that's what the risen Jesus has told them to do. There comes a point that the Holy Spirit comes in and it, and it fills them, he fills them, and they go out, and, and the promise of Acts 1-8, uh, wait and you will receive power from the Holy Spirit and you will be my witnesses, right? So, so they go out and they fulfill that promise. They're filled with the Holy Spirit and they go and they bear witness to Jesus in Jerusalem. In fact, there's all this stuff going on. Peter sees the opportunity, he gets up and he begins to preach the very first ever Jesus followers sermon. He gives this call at the end of the sermon, and 3,000 people come to faith. And the church goes from just a small group of people to 3,000 people over, overnight. And so what's next? That's what Luke's going to give us a little picture in chapter 2, verse 42. It says this. And they, this 3,000 plus the original, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. And everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and signs were being performed through the apostles' Now all the believers were together and they held everything in common. They sold their possessions and property and distributed the proceeds to all as any had need. And every day they devoted themselves to meeting together in the temple. They broke bread from house to house. They ate their food with joyful and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. Every day the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. God, help us to see in Luke's small picture of a day in the life of the early church, Uh, your prescription for the church and help us to see what that means for us today. 2,000 years later as First Baptist Portalis. Help us to submit to your word. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So we started last week. We talked a lot in verse 42 about this word devoted. So they devoted themselves to four things. The apostles' teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread, and prayers. So we're going to take those first two, that first and that fourth one, I mean, today, and we're going to focus on that and and kind of talk about learning about God. And the next week, we'll talk about fellowship and breaking of bread and what what all of that entails. So let's uh, let's kick off with just just the fourth one. So verse 42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Does anybody, any of your translations, instead of saying and to prayer, does anybody say and to the prayers? Anybody have that in their translation? Like ESV, right? That's one of them. So yeah, so the literal Greek in this situation is they devoted themselves to the prayers. That's the direct literal translation. Um, A lot of times modern translations will just say to prayer because that's a weird way. We don't say the prayers in that situation. But I think if you put it within the context uh, in which it's written, it starts to make a little bit more sense. Because these 3,000 people that have come to faith in Jesus, all of them have a shared background called Judaism, right? They're all Jewish people. That's the whole reason they've traveled for miles and miles to Jerusalem at Pentecost is because these are devout Jewish people so just in on this thing they believe in Yahweh that they are taking all their time, money, they're taking days off of work to get to Jerusalem for for this pilgrimage. And so whenever you're thinking about the prayers in terms of Jewish tradition, that was something that was regular and normal for them, that, that Jewish people would regularly and routinely, still do a lot of ways, uh, regularly and routinely say particular prayers. And so throughout the day, they would have this habit of saying, uh, like in the morning, they would say the Shema, or they would pray particular psalms depending on what day it was. But if you can kind of take, take that in stride and what it is, like 
what if you just prayed the Shema out loud right now? Dear Lord, listen Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. It doesn't really sound like a prayer that we pray today, right? Um, our, our prayers have notoriously, and I'm not saying this is a bad thing, but it's just kind of how things have changed. We've notoriously started praying what I call like God our butler prayers, where we're just like asking God for stuff. God, fix this. Deal with this problem. I don't want to have to face this anymore. Take this away. Um, and, and we treat God as if he's our uh, glorified holy butler that's there to serve us. you got to realize this is not a part of, of Jewish mindset. That, that's not the idea. Yes, there's room. Uh, even in the Psalms where David's going to ask God to do particular things, but all of that is always precedented with, with who God is and what God is doing. And so the Shema is this prayerful reminder in the morning of who God is and what God is doing. It's almost like a worship song, right? God is one. This is, this is who he is, and so we're going to worship God with all of our heart, our soul, and our strength. It doesn't necessarily sound like a prayer in our time, but it kind of sounds like, like a worship song. So, so these times of prayer, I think that Luke is pointing us to, is yes, they're specified times to focus on God, but that focus entails reflecting on God in a way of prayer and worship. And I think those things are being coupled together with this devotion to the apostles' teaching in the first part. So, so this church, this early church, they're getting together on a regular basis to, to learn about God through the apostles' teaching and to pray and worship together. Does that sound familiar? Is that like something we do today? Yeah, that's, that's what the church is for. And so then Luke's going to go in and give some explanation about what this looks like in verse 46 as they gather together. So verse 46 says this, every day they devoted themselves, so again he's going to use that same word devoted, to meeting together in the temple and they broke bread from house to house, and they ate their food with joyful and sincere hearts. So, so two places that th- this is all happening. One is in the temple, right? And the other one is house to house. I think these are two important things. Let me break this down to you. First, I have a, I have a picture to show you just kind of of um, turn of the century, um, new, new temple Jerusalem. So this is kind of an estimation of what Jerusalem may have looked like around, around this time. And so if you'll notice, there's, there's this wall that goes around uh, you can kind of see the black outline of the wall. Um, and, and the question is, you have 3,000 people. You went from zero to 3,000 overnight. You're trying to get these people in some organized manner together to learn about what this gospel means and, and what it's going to do and how it's going to affect everything. What's the most open spot in the town to meet? It's the temple courtyard. In fact, Jerusalem, still, the, the biggest kind of spot of open space or open area in Jerusalem today is the temple courtyard. You're talking about two to three football fields in length on both sides of it. And so this was a place that people would regularly come together. They they would come and they would meet. This is your meetup place in town. This is like the Walmart of Jerusalem. I don't think that's a good example. But, you know, everyone knows where this is located. Everyone knows how to get there. And so, hey, we're going to be meeting at the temple courtyard at 9 in the morning. Come out. We'll be learning from John tomorrow. And so you could reasonably fit 500 people in this courtyard and they could learn from the apostles. So, so this is a picture of large group settings, right? So, so Luke says that they would meet daily here in the temple courtyard, and then they would meet from house to house. So how, how big were the crowds in a house? Could you fit 500 people into a house back then? Absolutely not. It, you know, we're saying house. It, more envision the word like apartment, sing, single bedroom, like flat, so if you're thinking maybe max 10 to 25 people, 
Do you see what Luke's prescription and his description of the church is? That they're meeting together, both in large groups and in small groups, right? They're doing this. Do you guys see why we do connection groups and, and worship service and we try to emphasize both of those things? It's not just because we, you know, came up with it. The church is like, we really should add in Sunday school one day. This is something that the Bible has described and entailed for, since the church started. So they're meeting together in large groups and in small groups. Remember how I said we're, we're good at overcomplicating things? This is just what the Bible says. They would meet together, large and small groups, to do what? To pray and worship and to learn from the apostles' teaching. This is what they're doing on a day-to-day, regular basis. This is what we want to do on a regular, routine basis is meet together. By the way, just a little side pitch right here is my sales pitch. We have some awesome connection groups on Sunday mornings, by the way. If you're not plugged into one, um, I, I teach kind of young adults, college students, some other wonderful teachers that are teaching. If you want to get plugged into those, we, we will gladly put you in a place and let you find what it means to, to study God's word in small groups. So it's more than just this. But there's, there's my sales pitch on, on that. So they dedicated themselves to this routine lifestyle of meeting together at large and small settings to pray and worship and listen to the apostles' teachings. That's the setting of Luke 2 or Acts 2 early church. I think there's an inevitable question that this is all kind of deriving out of, uh, and that is, okay, so what are the apostles' teachings? If they're going to dedicate themselves to this, it would be good for us to understand, what, what does this mean? What are the apostles teaching? And this is where I'm going to spend kind of the, the bulk of the sermon today, and then we'll get into those final two points on the back of your bulletin if you're a note taker. But I really want to focus on this because I think this is in- incredibly important. What are the apostles teachings? Well, it starts with the gospel, right? If you go back up and you trace what is the very first teaching of the church from Peter to these 3,000 people, what is Peter teaching them? He's teaching them the gospel. Look at verse 36 of Acts chapter 2, and it just says this. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know with certainty that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. The gospel of the story of Jesus, Messiah, crucified, dead, buried, resurrected. This is the story of how the God of the universe came and dwelt with man as a man in order to reconcile the world to himself by absorbing our sin and our selfishness and our brokenness through this extreme act of love demonstrated by dying in our place, carrying our sins to the grave, and then resurrecting to cast our sins as far as the east is from the west. Just heads up, if you never knew that story existed, let me tell you, I have some good news for you. This is real. Jesus has offered forgiveness of all sins for anyone who would believe in him. This is what the apostles are teaching, correct? Now, here's the question. Is Peter just getting up every day, rehashing that exact same sermon over and over again? No, there's something more implied through all of this, right? So so yes, he is teaching the gospels, but there's something more about what's, what's happening here. Are the apostles teaching the gospel? Yes, that's the start of it. But it's because of this good news about Jesus the Messiah that all of a sudden there are these millions of implications that come out of that reality. There are all these different things, all these different points that are going to derive from what it means that the God of the universe took on flesh and died for our sins. And I think this is what the apostles are starting to explore. 
The apostles are helping these people uh, every day to explore this question of what does it mean to live as if this gospel is true? They, they want to guide these new believers into this life of following Jesus in every aspect. Is that not what Paul does in his letters, right? He's just saying, here's the gospel. Every single one of his letters is going to point straight back to the gospel to start with, and it's going to start to derive all of these implications because of that gospel. See, the gospel has this way of just changing everything in the world, changing the way we view everything in the world. I don't know, I don't know if this illustration is going to connect with everyone, but I'm going to try it anyways. Um, who, who, here remembers, who here remembers when Pokemon Go came out in 2016? Okay, I'm going to, this will connect with like 12 people. That'll, that'll be good, good enough for me. Um, so, so in 2016, there was a, a game on your phone come out called Pokemon Go, right? You guys, if you never played it, you probably at least saw news stories about it. This came out when we were in Socorro, and it was crazy because, uh, like, overnight, the tone of Socorro shifted. Um, we did a lot of college ministry, and so college students would complain, there's just nothing to do in this town. This town's so horrible. It's so small. We hate it. And they went from, like, that to the day after Pokemon Go came it came out to like, let's walk around the square for six hours today and just hunt. So, so if you don't know, Pokemon Go was this game where you would hunt like virtual Pokemon on your phone and it would use your GPS to track and calculate which Pokemon were around you and you could catch them as a silly little game. But I mean, these people went overnight from like, I hate this town to I'm going to march around the square all day, every day, catching Pokemon. Like it totally changed the way they viewed the world like that at least for a month or so. You guys remember this game that, that came out, right? Did any of you have that? that pre- did you participate in that at all? Like you, you participated in walking around, like three of you? That's cool. Um, did any of you like almost run over somebody that was just doing this the whole time? It's the more dangerous part of it, I think. Um, yeah, it just, it totally changed the way these people saw the world. It, it, even just for a few minutes, it made them see that the world around them was more than what they realized. And I use that as an example because I think this is the claim of the gospel, that the world around you is more than what you realize. Now, the reality is we do run into these different realities in life, these claims in life that will change it for a few months, you know, Pokemon Go, but it's not lasting anymore. There's not that many people playing it anymore. It doesn't, it doesn't matter. But some of you have stories where you encountered something, maybe it was something heavy, um, like a near-death experience or some sort of diagnosis um, that just totally changed the way you see the world, the way you see people, the way you see relationships, um, and it, it rearranged everything. This is what the gospel is claiming to do, to totally rearrange and change everything. Because here, here's the thing, we, we all approach God with all of these preconceived notions. We're constantly going to God with all of these things that we believe to be true. So even in this room right now, when I say God, how many of you think of an old man with a big, long, flowy beard? Or how, how many of you think of a sunshine rays, like coming through a cloud? You don't have to raise your hand on these, but like the perpetually ticked off old man that's just waiting to strike you down and ruin your day? Maybe you don't even believe that God exists, and that's the preconceived notion that you've carried with you. Uh, maybe you believe God exists, but you don't want a relationship with him, so you're trying to be as far away from him as possible. But, but the gospel comes in to all of our preconceived notions, whatever they may be, and it just shatters them. 
it totally obliterates any preconceived notion that we have as it reveals that the one true God of the universe is not distant, but he's lovingly committed to his creation, and he lovingly desires to set everything right by redeeming every single sinful man and woman who would place their trust in him. And if you believe in that, it starts to change everything. And and by that definition, then, the gospel is going to change how you see money and how you treat your own money. The gospel is going to change how you see and interact with your relationships, be it your family relationships, your coworkers, maybe marriage. It's going to create and change how you see conflict and forgiveness, how you deal with your career path or retirement or study habits. And the question is, how, how long does it take to learn these things? I think the answer is get comfortable because you're going to be learning them for the rest of your life. There's never a point that you're like, I think I pretty much understand this now. I'm good to go. Because every single time I feel like, I, yeah, I, I get this, either one of two things happens. Number one, I just get totally knocked down, and I'm like, oh, I did not get this. I'm nowhere near as smart as I think I am. Or number two, I open a door and there's 1,500 other doors. And I'm like, this is way bigger than what I ever anticipated it to be. And this is what the apostles are teaching on a regular basis. They're saying, hey, here's the gospel. Let's start there. Jesus, God of the universe, came in flesh to die for you so that you might experience the forgiving grace and live in reunion and complete union with God. Now let's talk about all the implications that that entails and how long do we get to spend talking about that. Get comfortable. We're going to be doing it for a long time, right? We're going to be talking about these types of things. This is what the apostles teach and focus on. And why do they do this? Well, because the church exists to make disciples, but but I think it goes even deeper than that. Two two more passages, and I'm going to hit these pretty quickly, so just keep, keep going with me. Let me kick it off in Matthew 28. It's a passage you know very well. Why do the apostles do this? Well, Matthew 28, verses 19. By the way, Matthew 28, and then we'll be in Ephesians 4. So, Matthew 28, 19 and 20. Go, therefore, making disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you, and remember I am with you always, even to the end of the age. What is Jesus' purpose for the church? Make disciples. Guys, it's, it's so great if we exist and we have really good, tight-knit, close relationships here in the church. And it's really cool if we get to have meals together, and that's all grand and fun. But you can find that relationship with your favorite football team and of someone else that shares a favorite football team. There's something more about this. There's something deeper about this, and it is found in this commission to go and make disciples. And I think it's interesting because Jesus doesn't say go evangelize all the nations. He says go and make disciples of them. And so how have we defined making a disciple? Well, to routinely learn about this and to routinely teach others about this. It's a person committing themselves to the routine practice of learning under or from a particular teacher. So what's Jesus' command? Go and teach everyone everywhere what I have taught you. Do you see the connection between the Great Commission and Acts chapter 2? Is this not what the church is doing in Acts chapter 2? Acts 2.42 is a description of the church fulfilling the Great Commission. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teachings. They're devoted to being and making disciples. And why do they do that? Not not because they want to really impress their friends with how big their church is. Not because they, you know, it feels really good to have a full sanctuary on a Sunday morning. They're not doing this because it helps them reach their budget and fill their committees or anything like that. 
They're doing this because Jesus told them to. And the gospel leads them to. Because the gospel has so intrinsically changed everything and how I see the world that I want you to come and see the world differently too. And so I want to talk about it. And I want you to talk about it. And it just shouldn't even be able to escape us how much we're talking about what this does and how it changes See, the church in Acts 2 isn't trying to manipulate politics in Jerusalem. They're not trying to gain any sort of influence. They're just trying to be Jesus' representation to everyone around them. It turns out when you live like Jesus, people become pretty interested in the teaching of Jesus. It's verse 47 of Acts 2. That as they were doing this, God was adding to their numbers. So why does the church exist to make disciples? Well, because number one, it's our commission. It's what Jesus called us to do. But I could even take you to Ephesians chapter 4, and I'd add this. Because it's how we represent God to the world around us. So Ephesians chapter 4, verse 20. But that is not how you came to know Christ. So he's contrasting how the Ephesians, um, how they were and how the world is around them versus who they are now in Jesus. So you're not acting like the world around you in impurity and desire for more and more. Because that's not how you came to know Christ. Does anyone's Bible say that's not how you came to learn Christ? You guys remember what the word for learn is? It's the same word for disciple. Yeah, it's, it's mathetuo. It's, it's disciple. And so Paul's saying, how did you become disciples? Assuming that you heard about him and were taught by him as the truth is in Jesus. So quick side point, when does someone become a disciple? When they hear about Jesus and commit to his teaching. We set up discipleship as this, 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 like, this pseudo-progression. Like, you can come to church on a regular basis, and yeah, you're saved, and you'll go to heaven one day, and that's good. But like, if you're really intentional as a Christian, then that's when you actually become a disciple. And that's, you know, it's, it's the Marine Corps of Christianity. This is what we do if you're really intense. Hoorah. It's like, wait. The Bible says the second anyone listens and puts their faith in Jesus, guess what? You're, you're a disciple. Welcome to the club. You may say, Philip, I really don't feel like one. Yep, but if you believe in Jesus, you are a disciple. And if you are a disciple, guess what you have been commissioned with? Make disciples. If you are a disciple, you are commissioned to make disciples, and you are a disciple the moment you put your faith in Christ. And then what happens? So to take off, so uh, verse 20, but this is not how you came to be a disciple of Christ, to learn Christ, assuming you heard about him and were taught by him as the truth is in Jesus, to take off your former way of life, the old self that is corrupted by deceitful desires, to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, the one created according to God's likeness in righteousness and purity and in truth. So what happens. God renews them to his likeness and to his purity and to his righteousness. They become the representation of God on earth. And here's the crazy thing. Here's a church, a community of spirit-filled people focused on Jesus. This is 30, 40 years after Acts chapter 2. It's hundreds of miles away. And the unifying mark of that church is the exact same as the unifying mark of Acts chapter 2. Why? Because this is what God has set up as the unifying mark of a church that we would come together in routine and, and learn these new lifestyles of discipleship about who God is and all the implications of the gospel that he's given to us. And, and the cycle keeps going. Do, do you understand the connection between Matthew 28, Acts chapter 2, Ephesians chapter 4, and First Baptist Church of Portalis? Because it's all connected. It's all right here together. 
You are connected and impacted by this gospel because countless people across the last 2,000 years have served and been a part of churches existing to make disciples. And don't get me wrong, I trust many of you have some incredible stories of God's power displayed in your life. But were any of you like struck by a lightning bolt and your eyes roll back in your head and you came to me and you're like, I'm a disciple now. No, you're a disciple because someone told you. Whether it was your parents or a Sunday school teacher or a pastor or, or a friend or a coworker, someone told you and you started to learn about Christ. So how are people out there going to become disciples? Is it going to be through God striking them with a lightning bolt, having their eyes roll back in their head and then being like, oh, I'm a disciple now. No, it's going to be by somebody telling them. And this is when Paul comes in and goes, how will they know if we don't go, guys? How can we make disciples if we're not teaching this and telling other people about this? The mark of a church is that we would be disciple makers. The question is, will we continue that pattern? And I fear we overcomplicate it so much. Because when we say discipleship, what we envision is that you know, one person regularly meeting with another one person for coffee uh, for like a year. Is that what you envision? That's what I envision when I think discipleship. Is that discipleship? Yes, absolutely. Do it. I mean, go meet with people. Have coffee with them. Train them. That's, that's wonderful. Uh, if you feel you're unequipped for it, go find someone to be trained by. Just find someone on the same level as you. Open up the Bible and talk about it. Trust the Holy Spirit's power to do stuff like that. But is that what the New Testament calls discipleship? It was Peter like, wait, we got 3,000 people. I need to set up a schedule so that I can meet with them one-on-one -on -one for coffee every day. It's a lot of coffee, and I don't think they had that many coffee shops in Jerusalem, right? No, what's the way that they're doing discipleship? It's this, coming and meeting in large groups and meeting in small groups while, while they just study about God. It, it's far more broad than that. You see, we limit the concept of, when we limit the concept of discipleship, we limit those who can be involved in discipleship. So let me try to wrap this up by just repainting your understanding of discipleship with some big, broad questions. So, so three quick questions, and here's where we'll close. Number one, who are the disciples in a church community, and who are called to make disciples in a church community? Is there qualifications for that? Is the, and these are the types of people that need to be the disciple makers of the church. No, the Bible never gives any qualification. The only qualification is, do you believe in Jesus? And if the answer is yes, then the answer to that question of who are the disciples in the church and who are the disciple makers in the church, the answer to that question is yes, everyone. If you believe in Christ, you are a disciple maker. Philip, I don't, I don't feel like I know enough. Do, do you know enough that Jesus saved you? Then you know enough to tell someone else. It's enough, I promise. Just trust it, go with it, see what happens. Who are the disciples in a church community and who are called to make disciples? Everyone. And if you don't believe that, we're going to have a time here in a few minutes that you can come and talk to me. I would love it if, if you would just put your faith in Christ right now and he would forgive you of your sins and, and you can come know that right here, right now at First Baptist Church this morning. But if you already know that, you are a disciple. So the next question, well, when, when does this start? Right now. I promise you, if, well, I'll get to disciple-making like once I graduate college. That'll be a good point for me. I can start making disciples once I finally get my kids out of the house and, and things kind of. You'll never make disciples that way. You're called to be a disciple-maker right here, right now. And that might be discipling your kids. And that might be discipling a friend in college. That might be discipling someone else. But you are a disciple-maker. It starts now. And final question, where, where does this happen? Does it happen in this room? Thanks for joining us. I hope, hope it does. But it also will happen in your house. 
And it can happen in the coffee shops. And it can happen in Walmart and Portales. It can happen anywhere that you would take this teaching from the apostles and say, hey, the gospel is true. Here's how it impacts the world around us. And First Baptist Church can finally begin to fulfill its role, or continue, I should say, to fulfill its role. We've been around for 120 years. We've fulfilled it already. But to continue to fulfill its role to make disciples. See, we as First Baptists, we are trying to provide a community where you can come and plug in and learn about Jesus. And we believe that when we start to do that, we get to see these things fulfilled. That it becomes a life-giving church and people get rooted in the gospel and it changes the way they see the world. That they get filled with the spirit and they start doing things that they otherwise would never do. That they plug into a community that they would otherwise never plug into. That they're inviting people to belong that, that maybe don't even look like they would belong, but we find belonging here. And all of this happens because we fulfill what Jesus told us to in Matthew 28. Go and make disciples. Are you doing that? Father God, I, I thank you that we have this commission. I pray this morning you would challenge me in this church that we would be a disciple-making church. And that if there's anyone in here that's just struggling with that, that you would give them the conviction, even this morning, to find somebody and meet with them or, or to plug into a small group, to teach a small group, maybe just to be more dedicated to coming and learning right here in this very room, but to becoming a disciple-maker that we as First Baptist might be a disciple-making church. Thank you for what you do. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen.